Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. My name is Victor Shi, a freshman at UCLA, the youngest elected delegate for Joe Biden, and one of the co-hosts of this podcast. And I'm Jill Weinbanks, an MSNBC legal analyst and the author of The Watergate Girl and Victor's co-host. I'm also the wearer of Jill's pins, hashtag Jill's pins. And today I'm wearing a special pin for our guest today. It's a Black Lives Matter pin. So um, hopefully you'll appreciate that, Brittany. Indeed, indeed. It's great to be with you all. We're so excited to have you. Um, So after the deaths of Michael Brown, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, um, Eric Garner, Laquan McDonald, uh, Flano Castile, and countless others, there has been a long overdue racial reckoning in America. Protesters of all ages have taken to the streets to demand racial justice and equality. Uh, many states and local uh, governments have enacted laws to protect black lives and reform policing. And most importantly, our culture is shifting. Yet despite everything that has happened over the last year, there's still so much to be done before we become a society in which full racial justice and equality are a reality. This is a fight that I have been involved in for more than 60 years, so I well know how challenging it is. But it's a fight that each generation has brought us closer to winning. Today we have with us Brittany Packnett Cunningham, the perfect guest to talk about the state of race in America, what laws need to be enacted to ensure racial justice and equality, the calls to reimagine policing in America, and her role in that and many other things that young people uh, in the Black Lives Matter movement have made more real today. Brittany is one of the most prominent and well-known voices in the fight for racial justice. Currently, she is an NBC and MSNBC uh, contributor. She is the host of Undistracted, a news and justice podcast with an intersectional uh, view on the events of today, and the founder and principal of Love and Power Works, a social impact firm focused on creating justice and equality in every sector. Before that, Brittany was executive director for Teach for America in St. Louis. She founded Campaign Zero, a policy platform uh, designed to end police violence. She was a leader of the Ferguson protest against the shooting of Michael Brown and a member of the Ferguson Commission and President Obama's Task Force on 21st Century Policing. At the conclusion of that task force, President Obama wrote her a note, and he said she was a voice that is going to be making a difference for years to come. So we're very honored and grateful for your being with us today to discuss these very important issues. Uh, Just as some more background, Brittany has a Bachelor's of Arts degree in African and American Studies at Washington University in St. Louis, and a master's degree in secondary education from American University, and had a time commitment to social justice. Uh, I first saw Brittany on a panel with Victor on Tiffany Cross's show, and as soon as I saw it, I called Victor and said, we have to have Brittany on our show. And of course, so was Victor. I was very excited to see the two of you together, and I'm very happy with us today. Welcome. Oh, I'm glad to be with you all while y'all really did all your research. Um, That panel is also the first time I ever heard Victor speak, and I was blown away, as I know you all are every single week. So it's really an honor to be with you both. Okay, so 
To say the least, the last year has been challenging not only because of the COVID pandemic, but also uh, because of the brutal killings of too many Black people in America. At the same time, it was inspiring to see so many people demand justice and equality. And I'm wondering, as a lifelong activist, how do you think the past year will fit in our nation's lifelong struggle for racial justice and equality? I mean, I think it's important that you called it a lifelong, country-long, generations-long fight because this is one chapter in a very protracted freedom movement. When we look at the resistance of enslaved Africans, when we look at the resistance of indigenous people, when we look at the resistance of immigrants to this country to oppressions that have been both systemic and widespread, um, this is the latest, right? It is not new or novel to fight for justice in this country or across the globe. Um, especially for Black people. And so I think that in the kind of canon, if you will, of freedom fighting, this will stand as a moment where a couple of things are true. One, it will be another recapturing of global attention, where we saw last summer, uh, you know, protests from Pittsburgh to Paris and lots of places in between, um, that there are times that you can point to along the timeline of freedom fighting um, where that kind of global attention was caught, where that kind of global engagement um, was felt. Uh, and that matters deeply because I think what that contributes to is every time you've got a moment of global connection and exposure, it's followed by moments of increased political awareness across the diaspora. So you've got a lot more people now who understand how connected the struggles of Black Americans are to Black Brazilians and other Afro-Latinos, uh, to, to folks um, over in Africa, to folks in Palestine, right? Like we've got um, broad connectivity between people across the world. And whenever you bring global attention to an issue, people are much more easily able to connect the dots. And that influences scholarship, it influences the tactics of activism, it, can, it influences um, how far your message reaches, reaches, but it will influence generations who will continue to do this work, who will say, let me think about how this fits into the global struggle. Um, I think what is also true, uh, especially uh, after last summer, is you saw a, uh, an increase in global attention. So, you know, Jill, you pointed out the Black Lives Matter pin you're wearing now. I remember during the 2016 election that it was practically impossible to get Democratic candidates to use the phrase Black Lives Matter. And it was only by a great deal of protest and organizing um, and intentional pushback that that became a standard for the Democratic Party, that if you were going to run as a Democrat anywhere in this country, at the very least, you need to be able to say Black Lives Matter. But obviously, we expect for you to show that Black Lives Matter. And so what's been interesting in, you know, the years since that election is now it is an ever more popular phrase. My husband and I just bought a house and we love our quiet, uh, interracial, intergenerational neighborhood. We've got folks who've lived here for 40 years, folks like us who have, you know, who just moved in, people who have young families. And there are Black Lives Matter sign and love is love signs all throughout the neighborhood, um, so it, it was a signal to us, right, that we had moved into the right place, <laughs> that we weren't seeing other signs on people's lawns. But what it also says, though, is 
once again, what is the action that people are willing to put behind this? So we see Black Lives Matter merchandise. We see the commercialization of the concept of Black Lives Matter happening across corporations. And then those same corporations are unwilling to stand up against widespread voter suppression bills that have followed the 2020 election. So that makes us wonder, well, how much do Black lives actually matter? Because if Black votes don't seem to matter, then surely Black lives can't matter that much. And so I think what you what what history will record for this time is a moment where people very intentionally wanted to get beyond rhetoric, which is important because it helps people shift mindsets, but help people get to the place of real policy and practice change, um, whether it's at the corporate level, certainly in government, local, state and federal. Um, but I think that this has been a time where people have been sharpening their skill in demanding what we deserve and not just expecting people to say the right thing. Lastly, I think um, what will continue to be true about this movement and what has been true about this moment is that we are a leaderful movement. A lot of folks in media have been very confounded by the idea that there's not a single person or personality to kind of latch on to, to represent the whole of uh, this movement. But part of that is because history recorded previous chapters of the Black freedom struggle incorrectly. It recorded it like Martin Luther King Jr. and maybe Rosa Parks and maybe Malcolm X were the only people um, of any worth. And meanwhile, leaving people like Fannie Lou Hamer and Baird Rustin uh, uh, and so thousands of others um, kind of pushed them to the, the footnotes of history, right? When meanwhile, they were the architects of our country right now. They were the architects, certainly, of this movement because we stand on their shoulders and the kind of tactical diversity that you see in the movement now, you saw in the movement then. You had everyone from uh, folks like uh, Dr. King to later people in the Black Power and Black Arts movement. You have SNCC that goes through an evolution um, from you know leadership of people like uh, John Lewis to the leadership of people like Kwame Ture. So the diversity that has always been present in Black freedom struggles is present now. And I think because of things like social media and platforms like this, podcasts, et cetera, we've been able to more accurately record our history as it is being made to ensure that instead of hearing one name, you hear hundreds of names, to ensure that instead of thinking about one place as synonymous with the movement, you think about every city because as we always say, Ferguson is everywhere and this is not an issue that is um, uh, narrowed to just one region of the country. Um, we've ensured that history is being recorded correctly to understand that we may not all agree on the tactics, but we do have the same vision and goal in mind of um, of real liberation for our people because we know that when Black people experience liberation, lots of other groups of people will materially benefit from that. Um, so yeah, those are those are just some of my reflections coming off of this last year, and I think that it will be up to us, um, those folks who are still living through this moment, to decide what will become of the kind of fervor that we saw for the movement over the last year. You touched on so many great points, and, and I, they're so, all so important. And one of them that I really resonated with me was just kind of this idea of public awareness and attention then leading to change in policy um, outcomes. And we're seeing that with corporations, as you said, as well as uh, different legislation and state and local governments. But at the same time, we're also seeing kind of this increase push for voting restrictions. So that makes me wonder if you're optimistic about the future, and if so, um, why you are. 
You know, optimism is a funny word because I think that certainly not you, but I think sometimes in the in the societal scheme of things, we treat optimism like a garnish, right? That we just sprinkle on to really hard things and we say, yeah, this is a really seemingly intractable problem. It feels impossible, but you know, I'm I'm optimistic about the future. And we just kind of sprinkle it on there and we move on. What I like to possess is disciplined hope. And I call it disciplined hope because it is earned, right? It is based on real data and real evidence of what it has looked like over time to change the things that matter most. So the hope that I have is in it is a discipline, it is a practice, it is something that I have to actively feed into based on what is and isn't happening. So I've got hope because people like Latasha Brown and Sayufold and Cliff Albright, who transformed um, voting in Georgia in 2020, I have disciplined hope because they exist and because they did the impossible alongside thousands of other people, right? Um, I have hope because people like my friend Kayla Reed, who's a, an incredibly talented organizer in St. Louis, um, I have hope because people like her exist. And she linked arms with a woman named Tashara Jones and saying my hometown of St. Louis now not only has the first black woman mayor in its history, but Tashara is providing us righteous representation. So it's not just about her identity. It's about the fact that she has committed to closing uh, the workhouse, which is a medium security prison in St. Louis. It's about the fact that she took four million unused dollars from the St. Louis Metro Police Department and has reallocated it toward fair housing, health and other initiatives. Um, and so I, you know, those are the kind of people and, and victories that give me hope. And I recognize that whenever something is dying, it fights back harder than it ever has before. We are finally at the point where we are looking white supremacy in its face as a system and as a culture. We are calling it what it is. We are refusing to allow us to euphemize it and, and, and use all of these other words to describe what is actually happening. And we, um, because we have gotten bold enough to call it what it is, we're getting bold enough to really fight it at its root, right? To really uproot this tree that has born such inequitable fruit, right? This, this tree that feeds some people well and feeds other people so poorly was planted intentionally. And so we have decided to not only uproot it, which is difficult in and of itself, we've also decided to plant something in its place, right? Because, you know, as Miriam Kaba says, abolition is about creativity. Tearing the things down that harm us and that hurt us and that kill us is only good in as much as we replace it with something that we build and create in our own image that actually feeds and takes care of and houses all people well. Um, and so because we have continued to get bold about that, because we have borrowed from the intentions and the thoughtfulness and the writings and the work of our elders and our ancestors who came before us, with each generation, we've gotten more clear and more clear and more clear on exactly how we do that. And if white supremacist patriarchy is going to operate um, at diminished capacity, if it is experiencing its last gasps, 
It's going to fight and flail and push back harder and harder and harder because it knows its days are numbered, because it knows that people have wisened up, because it knows that people know how to find it when it's when it's trying to hide in the room. It's because people have figured out how to call it out and shine the light on it instead of being frightened by that anymore. Um, and so I am fully clear that there are going to be even more, we're going to see even more pushback. If you look at state houses across the country right now, there have been three things primarily that they have focused on. It has been voter suppression, as you talked about, we're talking about over 300 bills. It has been anti-LGBTQ legislation in particular, pushing back against the uh, uh, ability for trans youth to have gender affirming health care and participate in sports. There have been 33 states that have introduced at least 100 bills in that nature. And there has been anti-protest legislation, legislation that makes it permissible for people to run over protesters if they're in the street or um, for to increase the amount of arrestable offenses in a country where protest is supposed to be our right. So these three things have been happening broadly across state lines. Um, and well, actually the, the fourth kind of pillar of this has been anti-abortion laws, right? So when we talk about anti-abortion, yes, we are talking about a person's right to choose, but ultimately we are talking about bodily autonomy and whether or not we can declare our own purpose for our lives, right? So these four things are happening across state lines. That is all intentional. That is all systemic. That is all deliberate. And the beautiful thing is um, that we knew this was coming. The beautiful thing is that whenever marginalized people get upright backs, the pushback is swift and it is strong, especially when white supremacist patriarchy is on its last breath. And so between the lawyers who are suing um, to upend these laws and the protesters who are bringing attention and awareness and the organizers who are engaged in disciplined campaigns um, to, to unseat uh, people who are passing these laws uh, and to uproot these kinds of bills um, to the everyday people who are making donations and making phone calls and sending emails um, and sharing tweets and setting up podcasts and and websites to make sure that people can fight back. Um, we are ready. We are ready. It doesn't mean that the fight won't be hard, but we are more than capable um, of, of getting more free because our ancestors did far more with far less. And Brittany, you've mentioned a number of really important issues, but I want to talk more about police reform. Uh, the demand for police reform after the Derek Chauvin uh, killing of George Floyd and his conviction has been loud and strong. But we saw demands six years ago in response to the police uh, killing of Michael Brown and Ferguson for the same kind of reform, and nothing happened. So... Let's put ourselves back six years ago and see what progress we've made. Let's talk about, you know, what was your role in the Ferguson um, uprising and how significant that protest was in calling attention to law enforcement's treatment of black citizens. Yeah, I wouldn't say that nothing happened. Certainly everything that we want to have happened has not happened, right? Um, to your question about the Ferguson uprising, the Ferguson uprising and the reason why we call it an uprising is because what we're actually talking about is over 400 days of sustained direct action, which actually makes it this country's longest direct action campaign 
in in the history of America, of, of the United States, right? So it's longer than the Montgomery bus boycott. What happens is that um, Michael Brown is killed by Darren Wilson in Ferguson. And over the next six months, St. Louis County Police, which is where Ferguson is, and St. Louis City Police, they kill at least six more Black men in the next six months. People like Kajim Powell and Von Derrick Myers, um, almost a year to the day later, um, two blocks from where, from my the church that I grew up at, Westside Baptist Church, um, at an intersection called, of, of Page Avenue and Walton, the police kill a young man named Mansur Balbay, almost a year to the day. And we have poured into yet another part of the city um, as organizers and as protesters and as activists. Um, and what happened on that day, which is far less reported, um, is that the police told us to uh, get out of the street. Now, mind you, when they told us to do this, everyone was already on the sidewalks. But what they were doing was they were creating a pretense for them to be able to do what they did next. So everyone was already on the sidewalk, but then they roared down the street with an armored vehicle and they shot tear gas canisters out of the side. This is a year after Michael Brown. I can tell you from personal experience that the tear gas that was shot at us in that moment was stronger than the agent that they had used in Ferguson. When they got to the end of the block, they turned around and they did the same thing coming back in the other direction. In a show of force, and intimidation of violence and domestic terrorism against a residential community that was in mourning because yet again, another black person had been killed by police. And I tell that, that story in, the, in, in, the, in that kind of year timescape that I do, because to your point, the urgency that we feel about ending this issue has not always been matched by the folks who have been in position to make decisions about it. And so, uh, you know, in 2014, I sat on, on the Ferguson Commission, <clears throat> which I believe was a really... Um, powerfully democratic process because we made it ju not just about the issue of policing, but we asked St. Louis, what are the issues that matter to you most? And so it was certainly policing and municipal governance. And it's also um, education and healthcare, life expectancy, um, and the ideas that are uh, currently on paper are being um, supported and worked through by folks across the St. Louis community. And those ideas came straight from the people. They didn't just come from academics and experts and organizers and activists. They came straight from the people. I also sat on President Obama's task force. And I think that um, there were some really important things that we had to demand in 2014 and 2015. And I think it is critically important to recognize where the cultural zeitgeist is now. Um, you know, the call to reallocate funds from police is not new, but people didn't pay attention to it until folks started saying defund the police. And that really shook people up. Right. Because that is an intentionally provocative phrase. But what we're talking about is really reimagining public safety. But when we called it that, nobody <laughs> wanted to pay attention. Right. So we're at this place now where six seven years ago, the demands were for body cameras. The demands were for more diverse police uh, forces. The demands were for ensuring that the police who patrol a place actually live in that place. Um, there were, was lots of conversation about community policing, which was not a new concept. It was actually 
created in the 60s or 70s. Um, but it's this idea that the police officers um, know the community that they're in, right? We saw lots of basketball games and ice cream trucks with police officers handing out free ice cream sandwiches. We saw a lot of that pop up, right? So some of these were some really well-intentioned uh, interventions. But that was six or seven years ago. And here we are in 2021 with more data about how well or not well those things do or don't work. And we've got uh, more urgency because people are saying, we gave you a chance in 2014 and 2015 and 2016 to do the body cameras, for example. And now we find that police departments will hide body camera footage that does not work for them, that does not put them in a good light. We know that officers have gotten smart about angling their bodies or covering their body cameras or knowing how and when to um, circumvent uh, the technology and turn them off. We know that communities actually don't feel any safer with increased surveillance because they're saying, you've got this body camera on, you're entering my home, you're walking up on me in my car, I don't know what you're doing with this footage, I don't feel more safe with your ability to surveil me more. So people are saying in 2021, you had a chance to try the reforms, but now we're over reforms, right? We are in a place where we recognize that a system that was built with intention to put to patrol and capture black bodies as property when they were slave patrols actually can't be reformed. It has to be deconstructed and replaced. That's where we come to this idea of reimagining public safety. That's where we come to this idea of saying, what if the money that keeps going into these ballooning policing budgets where crimes are not being solved, violence is not being reduced. What if we actually put that money instead of growing those police budgets into the things that really keep people safe? Stronger mental health facilities and services, ensuring that if you call 911 in mental distress, that a social worker is who is on the other end of the phone. Um, ensuring that good housing and livable wages are accessible to a community where often crime is coming from lack because if I am if I am trying to get some money or trying to get some food for my family if I have a more honest way to go about that I can make different choices right um, because society is set up to allow me to make those different choices so um, we're at a place I think where the culture has moved much more rapidly I think than some people expected to folks being willing to try on the uncomfortable suggestions that people like Angela Davis have been making for decades um, and saying, like, if this hasn't been working all this time, then we are not smart to keep trying the same thing over and over again. Like, let's actually go back to the drawing board. And I think that courage and that bravery and that willingness comes in great part because, to your point, Jill, over six or seven years, people are tired of the numbers not changing. People are tired of the reforms not working. People are tired of the things that we told were going, we were told were going to happen, haven't happened yet. So people have said, time's up. There's no more patience anymore. Your timeline has run out. You now have to actually get serious about refunding the people and creating societies and spaces um, that are truly safe from the ground up. So I want to ask you two follow-ups to what you said. One was mm -hmm. that defund the police was a deliberately provocative uh, term. Was it chosen for that purpose, mm -hmm. and has it served a purpose, or has it um, had a negative impact? 
So, um, uh, I believe it was, it was either the Missouri Times or the Missouri Independent, forgive me for not remembering the, the paper, but Rebecca Rivas, who has been a reporter in St. Louis for a long time, recently wrote this article about the intentional choice around the phrasing of defund the police. And what people have to remember is that the role of the activist and organizer in society is to imagine everything that is possible and to set the flagpole as far out as possible, knowing full well that if we shoot for the moon and land amongst the stars, that's a better win than setting low expectations and incremental goals and never really getting far enough, right? So that is part of why um, uh, provocative messaging can be helpful when one is building a social justice campaign. Um, and I think that there is, so here's another great example of this is the land back movement, right? That is, that is, um, being, uh, pushed by many folks in indigenous communities. As people are like, oh, you know, if it, if it is, if, if the phrase is, um, you know, uh, recognize Indian humanity, right? Or if the phrase is, you know, recognize indigenous sovereignty, Are those things true? Are they part of the demand? Absolutely. But does that grab attention the way that something like, no, 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 we we deserve our land back, right? That's a different proposition. Suddenly you've made people uncomfortable. Suddenly you've got people paying attention. And when you choose phrases like these, you know that there is going to be pushback. You know that there are going to be people who say, well, you cost me my race. Well, guess what? We're not politicians. <laughs> we are organizers and activists, and we intentionally set the flagpole as far as possible. So now what is happening, because we set the flagpole all the way out there, lots of people don't like the idea of defund the police. But when you actually get into the meat of it, you realize that what people are not talking about is a lawless uh, you know, uh, space, right? What they're, what they're, what we're not talking about is apocalypse now. What we're actually talking about is creating what public safety looks like with community at the lead. So the community can decide when I call 911, here's who I want to answer the phone. Here's who, how I want this response to be. In fact, I want to call 911 for this. I don't want to call 311 for this. I don't want to call 211 for this. And I want to make sure that if my brother, who has a mental disability, needs some support, and I need some support to deal with him, that you send the appropriate pain, right? Um, And so when you really dig into it, then you get people like Tashara Jones in St. Louis, who I just talked about. You get people like Mayor Savante Merrick in Ithaca, New York, who is saying, let's actually fund the creation of a new institute of public safety again, with the community at the lead. So let's actually have the community sit around at the table and we design this together. Um, And the willingness to look at what is not working for all of us and design it in in a functionally different way that supports and protects us all takes courage. It takes bravery. It takes being provoked out of the things that you thought may have worked once upon a time. Um, And so I think that what is powerful in this moment um, is looking at folks like the two of them, looking at um, organizers who have been uh, pushing back on policing budgets uh, in places like L.A. and New York um, and recognizing that even if uh, even if. 
Um, everything doesn't change overnight, that there has been more movement toward a big goal um, than one gets if you are only moving toward incremental goals. So, you know, I think that people people hear a phrase that they don't agree with and they assume, not you all, of course, but in public, people will assume a lack of intelligence or sophistication. People will say, defund the police, you don't know what you're talking about. This is a fool's errand, you know, what an idealistic phrase. Um, when actually... It was created with great intention and discipline and strategy as a messaging technique to push a social and political conversation beyond where it was ready to go a couple of years ago. And now you've got many more people who are willing to come to the table and say, yeah, let's let's fund creating mobile health units. So then when you call 911, there's a social worker on the other end. Yeah, let's let's reimagine that public safety. Let's look at Raz Baraka, the mayor of uh, Newark, New Jersey, where a police officer, the police officers did not fire a gun for an entire year. Um, and there is has been a completely there's been a shift in safety in that community. Right. We look at Camden, New Jersey, similarly. Um, and so, yeah, when you are willing to provoke people with intention you can get more done um, because people are willing to go a little bit further sometimes when they have been provoked into thinking that way. And in terms of the commissions you've served on, uh, of the recommendations from both Ferguson and from uh, the Obama commission, which ones have been implemented and effective and which ones haven't been that you think still need to be? So um, part of the unfortunate thing, especially around the, the Obama uh, task force, is that we published that report in 2015, uh, spring of 2015. By summer of 2015, the presidential election is in full swing. And of course, by November 2016, um, there was a very different fate, shall we say, than the one that many of us expected. And so uh, Donald Trump's administration very quickly took the recommendations off of the DOJ website. Like they were just gone. They were lost to the ether. Um, and so some of those setbacks have a lot to do with the fact that not only was there no intention of um, fixing public safety for the Trump administration, in fact, the intention was to double down on the kind of violence and repression through the expression of, of, of you know, state-sanctioned violence and policing, um, that that was what Trump wanted, right? He wanted more of that, not less of that. So um, one of the things that I and Brian Stevenson worked really hard to ensure was in the um, was in that commission report as a baseline for accountability. I want to be very clear, as a baseline for accountability. So this is not the conversation of prevention yet. It's the conversation of accountability after the police have already engaged in violence against communities. But what we had to make sure was in there were independent and external um, investigations and prosecutions. Because one of the things we see happening across the country is that the police will investigate themselves when one of their own engages in violence. Well, now that's actually not <laughs> that's actually not helpful and often counterintuitive. Um, and the kind of corners that you imagine get cut, get cut. Um, that has not been implemented in a widespread way. Um, and again, as a base level of accountability is one of the things that is functionally necessary. I talked about body cameras already. That was in, in both reports. And we see that that has, um, that has worked to far less success than people, I think, who came up with the, those ideas intended. Um, 
both because people are able to evade accountability and because, again, accountability is only half of the equation. Ultimately, we want to get to the point where all people in this country can lead thriving lives and never fear for their safety um, at the hands of someone who's supposed to protect and serve them. So accountability was always only a stopgap, right? It was never the end-all be-all. And I think that one of the things that's important to recognize is that policing in America is hundreds of years old. So there is sometimes this great expectation out in society that in six or seven years, we will have transformed something that has been entrenching itself over over centuries. Um, And I think that there's, um, uh, again, boldness that we're seeing on the part of certain district attorneys, certain mayors, certain city council presidents who are ready to have more robust conversations because a lot of the things, again, that we were discussing in 2015 and 2016, they've been tried, they've been studied, and they're not making the kind of material and demonstrable change um, that we deserve. I I think now we're we're finally starting to see some kind of action being taken on the federal level. Lawmakers in Congress, I know, are working to pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, which would um, end the practice of chokeholds and um, other holds, um, reform qualified immunity, condition aid to local states and um, municipalities based on whether or not they actually ban the use of chokeholds and invest more in police training. Um, So far, that's passed in the House, and Senators, I think, Booker and Scott have indicated that it's making progress in the Senate. I'm first wondering what you think of that bill and whether or not you think that will get passed this year. So from from my seat, the bill doesn't go far enough. Um, My friend, Derricka Parnell, who is a lawyer and and, an organizer and just brilliant, constantly reminds us that a bill named for George Floyd should have been able to save his life. And this does not, unfortunately. That doesn't mean that there's nothing important in the bill. Um, Qualified immunity is um, uh, one of the many things that allows for police officers to engage in violence with impunity, um, without any sense of accountability. Um, and yet we see the Republicans are, are including Tim Scott, have been um, quick to push back on, on that particular provision. Um, we know that, uh, unfortunately, when it comes to police violence, um, perpetrators of it know how to get technical. So they'll say that wasn't a chokehold, that was a cartoid hold, or that wasn't a cartoid hold, that was um, a headlock, right? And all of these little split hairs end up, again, allowing people to pervade accountability. Um, I also worry deeply about bills that fund police more. Training police is something that, to be very honest, I used to believe in. I used to believe that the problem could be solved if we just trained people better. And while I think that in certain industries, that is absolutely the appropriate course of action, the police have had lots of time. And I know people who have been training policing departments and institutions for decades on issues of diversity and equity and justice and legitimacy, decades. And we're still here in a place where the police are killing at least a thousand people every single year. So um, the there there has been rightful pushback, I believe, from the movement about this bill. 
They pointed to things like the Breathe Act as being much more comprehensive. Um, uh, people like Ayanna Presley have supported that. Um, so I, but but and I also recognize that passing the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act is also incredibly important to George Floyd's family. Um, and so I don't want to take away from the importance of these conversations and these issues being taken up in Congress. And I recognize that, especially having worked in D.C. for a long time, both on and off the Hill, I recognize that there are very few bills that pass where everybody gets everything that they want. <laughs> um, so um, I think that there are some worthwhile things in the bill. I think what is important, though, for us to keep our eye on as activists, as people engaged in this issue from whatever space you're entering it, is that there are nearly 18,000 police departments in America, which means that most of the decision-making is being made at the department level, the local level, and the state level. Mayors are often the ones who are hiring and choosing who the police chief is. State legislatures, state senates, and, and state houses of representatives, they're often the ones who are passing things like um, like Blue Lives Matter bills that allow, again, officers to evade accountability, um, officers' bill of rights that uh, allow people allow officers to not be questioned for up to 30 days after they've killed someone or allow them to see the evidence that's going to be used against them if they're prosecuted or disciplined for that act of violence, right? Those decisions are made in state houses. Um, uh, it is often department regulation that sets use of force policy, um, that declares when you're allowed to shoot at someone, that declares that you're allowed to shoot at moving vehicles, even though that actually puts um, citizens and police officers in greater danger. Um, and so what's important for us is as we push on the federal level, which we have to, we also have to be pushing on the local level because a lot of these decisions are being made in places where nobody's paying attention and they depend on us not knowing that those decisions are being made in those places at those times. For, for any young person listening to this, what advice do you have to them to like get into the ears of elected officials and those who have power? Um, because I think at first it may seem daunting, especially as you said, you want to yeah. achieve these big solutions, but how do kind of, you know, someone who wants to get involved in this issue actually take action on that? I would say get in community and get creative. The good news is that everywhere across this country, across every U.S. territory, across the world, there are committed groups of people working on any issue that you care about. Climate change, gun violence, policing, education, uh, uh, living wages, fair housing, clean water, all of these things have organizations and groups of people who are dedicated to this issue, who are educated on this issue, and who are taking collective action because we are legitimately stronger together. It can sometimes be our ego telling us, I have to be the one to go lead this fight. I have to be the one to go create something new. Link up with the people who are also passionate about this issue. See what they're up to. Learn from them. Partner with them. Train with them. Do the work with them. Uh, because when we are in community with each other, two things are true. One, we can get more done and we can get further faster. But two, we can also practice creating the world that we want to see. Because when we're in community with people who are like us and who are different than us, we actually have to practice the things we're talking about. We have to practice what justice looks like. We have to practice what equity looks like. We have to practice what love looks like. 
Um, and so when you're in community with those folks, you have the power and the ability and the opportunity to actually create the world as you're building it, right? To be able to say, here are the practices that we engage in with each other that keep us safe, that keep us whole, that keep us loved. And that's what we want to help spread. So I would say get in community and get creative. It is so beautiful to see your generation, Victor, be so innovative in how you all push back. I mean, I am a TikTok voyeur. I do not post anything, but I get on there and A, I learn so much from people, but I'm also just watching how folks are educating people about lost history using music and dance in ways that our generations had never thought of, right? Um, I will never forget the pride that swelled in my in my chest about you all's generation, knowing that it was young TikTokers who secretly <laughs> bought up all of those Trump rally tickets and had the president of the United States fully embarrassed on national television. I mean, that is creative, right? That is innovative. Um, and there are some tried and true things that we know work, but there is always an opportunity to figure out how to get the attention of the decision makers in ways that are compelling, provocative yet again, um, and are creative. So like use, use what y'all got to your advantage, right? The creativity, it helps. It helps you get the kind of attention that you need and deserve. It helps people, you know, it helps put lawmakers in the position where they have to answer for their votes, for their positions, for their, for their work. Um, you know, the disability rights community has had a lot of creative protests on Capitol Hill. Um, um, and that doesn't mean that it comes without danger, but, um, I would say get in community and get creative. So Brittany, I want to ask you a question sort of on the other side of that, which is I completely agree with you on collective community action. But there's also interpersonal, one-on-one. And I, I want you to talk a little bit about any advice you might have on sort of how do two things happen. One, how do conversations occur between let's just loosely call it Democrats and Republicans, maybe Trumpers more specifically, um, yeah. in, in a time when <laughs> facts don't matter on one side of that equation, how do you have a conversation and to bring someone to accept facts and to maybe persuade views? That would be, you know, one side of it. Um, and the other is on the specific issue of discussing race. How do we have a conversation that many find uncomfortable and we're afraid of using the wrong word or words and ending up offending the person we're trying to have the conversation with? How do we do those two things on an individual basis? Yeah. Um, so to this partisan conversation that you're asking about, it's interesting because I, I feel like I have a clock that I set because there's only so much energy that I am willing to expend in trying to convince someone that the sky is blue when it is clearly <laughs> blue, right? If you refuse to accept that the clock says noon <laughs> when the minute 
and the hour hand are both straight up, there is only so much time and energy I'm going to expend. And the reason is not because I'm insensitive. The reason is not because I don't care. The reason is because part of part of the strategy of oppression is to exhaust us, is to keep me punching a brick wall that has no hope of being pummeled with just my fist, right? So instead of coming up over and over again against that brick wall, I have one strategy that I use. I set a timer on it. If it doesn't work, I say, God bless you. Hopefully the <laughs> seed I planted will, will germinate later, but I have work to do, right? In all of these other places. But my strategy is the Socratic method. Ask a lot of questions. I say, you know, where did you get that information? <laughs> Who told you that? Have you, has it been confirmed? Have, have, is there, are there other folks who have been able to prove that that is true? Well, okay, well, have you ever heard somebody say the opposite, right? Well, try this experience or this piece of data on, right? What, what, what do you make of that? When you ask people questions, you invite them to do their own learning. Um, and it takes the burden and responsibility off of the person who often is, is of an oppressed identity as a woman, as a person of color, et cetera, um, uh, and puts it squarely on the person who is like wrong, <laughs> right? <laughs> so I, I ask a lot of questions. I ask a lot of questions because when you ask questions and you start to pull at that thread, oftentimes the um, the lack of logic will begin to unravel. Right. This. Well, I heard it here. Well, my uncle's brother's cousin's babysitter told me that that happened to her. And you're like, hmm. I don't know if that makes sense. Right. And people start to question that themselves. So I use the Socratic method and um, I, I measure I measure that clock by my own energy. If I feel <laughs> like I'm getting to the place where this is depleting me instead of adding to me, then it's time to move on. So I, I don't, I'm barely on Facebook. I don't spend a lot of time in Twitter arguments with people anymore. Um, I don't, um, you know, even on television, when I get on there, I'm there to make the point that I'm there to make. I'm not there necessarily to debate somebody else who I don't agree with, where my thoughts are gonna go in one ear and out the other, because my key points, my key messages are going to reach the people they're meant to reach, right? Um, and people who, will be helped by the language that they've been looking for, for a point they've been trying to make. Because um, sometimes they are better messengers for those family members or those loved ones who are unconvinced than I could ever be. Um, to your question about race, you know, it's interesting because we've got libraries full of the facts and the data on all of this stuff, right? They're, they're entire genres on Netflix and Hulu right now, where you can watch everything from Amend, about the 14th Amendment, to the 13th Amendment, the, the documentary from Ava DuVernay, to the Tulsa Massacre, which a lot of people just learned about this year during the centennial. Um, and so I certainly encourage people, before you ask someone who is of color to have the conversation with you, to spend the time educating yourself as a beginning, Right. As a beginning, um, because then when you go have the conversations, at the very least, you'll probably have some mm -hmm. shared language, some shared knowledge, some shared data that eases the jumping off point of the conversation. The second thing we have to do is uh, we have to ask people if they want to have the conversation. Um, I think what is so hard in these times is 
We will get the outreach from people who don't share our racial background. And sometimes we want to talk about it and sometimes we don't (laughs) because it is hard enough living in this existence. My good friend, Sarah Ha, who we used to work together. um, But when when there was a a clear increase in um, anti-Asian American Pacific Islander violence, I realized that I was sending her the same message she had sent me last summer. Like I was, I was about to, right? And so when I texted her, I said, you know, I said, you don't have to answer this. <laughs> I just want you to know that I love you, that I'm here for you. And if you do want to talk, I'm here. And if you don't, you're like, I'm continuously praying for you and your family, right? Um, and I wanted to say like, and I affirm all of the work that you have been doing for your community and for your people all this time, right? Um, and so it is, it, sometimes it's really not sometimes, all the time. And it's really important to ask permission because the additional cognitive weight of living this existence um, can sometimes mean that we actually don't want to talk to somebody who doesn't all the way understand it. And we're going to encourage you to go read something or watch something or go talk to somebody else. And that is okay. Don't take that as an insult. Don't take it personally. It is that the weight of this is sometimes so heavy that I don't have the words. Um, the other thing I think is is uh, really just about listening. Part of what I love about social media is that we can learn and engage in real-time conversations with people without actually interrupting them. Here's what I mean by that. I remember I said something years ago that was very wrong um, on disability, and I did not realize just how wrong it was. And I realized part of the reason why I didn't realize that was because The voices of disabled people were not a regular part of my social media diet, right? I have friends who are disabled. I have family members who are disabled. I have, I now know many disability rights activists. Um, But the place where I was getting most of my input was not a place where I could scroll and regularly see somebody talking about this. Um, And so I did what I I call a, a, a social media audit. I looked at who I was following. I cross-referenced that list with the list of my own social identities. So I am a, a Christian woman. How many folks who are not Christian am I following? How many Jewish folks am I following? How many Muslim folks am I following? How many atheists am I following? How many agnostic folks am I following? Um, how many trans women am I following as a cisgender woman? Um, how many disabled folks am I following as a temporarily able-bodied woman? Like all of that matters. And so when I did that, I started to learn the lingo. I started to learn the hashtags that I could follow that would give me even more information and deeper reading. I started to figure out what books to buy. I started to figure out what conferences to go to to learn from people in person. I developed real in-person relationships with people by following them online. I figured out who to amplify when somebody was asking me, well, what should I think about this? And I'm like, oh, here's a voice you should follow because they know far better than I do. And I could do all of that without making a request from any of these folks because I simply decided to be an intentional member of the audience for the conversation that they were already having in public. Um, And so I wasn't placing any additional burden or responsibility on them, but I have learned so much. My behavior, my action, my mindsets are different because that's a regular part of my engagement now. So I encourage everybody to do a social media 
audit at least once a year to write down your major social identities and then to go and intentionally follow all of the folks who don't match those. And if you don't know who those folks are, there are so many listicles. You can Google 10 disability actors to follow, 10 Asian actors. You can go do that right now. Or you can just get on Twitter or Facebook and say, hey, I want to learn more about this. Who should I follow? And see who gets suggested. Um, so those conversations are, are certainly, they can be uncomfortable. But if we come in with a base of knowledge because we've been listening and learning with intention, um, they can certainly be eased and they can be more productive ultimately. That's a great answer, um, much more than I ever expected. Thank you very much. And uh, Victor, I know you have another question, maybe our last question. Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, I've been so inspired by my peers and the urgency with which they've acted to reform issues surrounding racial injustice and policing in America. I'm wondering if you can talk about um, the, I guess, first, the importance of young people and I guess where you see this movement going um, in the future. There is not a social movement in the history of this country that has been successful and effective where young people have not been at the vanguard. I want to be very clear about that. There is not a single one where young people have not been incredibly essential to the success, the achievements, the victories, the effectiveness, the outcomes of the movement. Part of that is because youth is creativity, youth is audacity, <laughs> youth is nerve, right? Youth is not having all of the responsibilities and risks that someone else does so you can be a little bit more on the edge sometimes. Um, youth is having, if you're smart about it, youth is having the benefit of the wisdom of your elders if you're smart enough to sit there and ask and engage them in the work because they've still got plenty to offer, right? Um, so there is not a way for us to move forward without young people in the lead. And I think part of what is so important for young people to continue to do now that you all have been doing is to paint the picture of what it looks like if we don't get this right. I think climate change is a really clear example of that that the world that you all are inheriting is one that is much less healthy than the world that I inherited, my mother inherited, her mother inherited. Um, and we have a responsibility to ensure that that's not the case, to reverse as much of that damage as possible. You know, um, it is easy to like get online and blame millennials for, you know, we've, we millennials, we've been blamed for killing marriage, home buying, having children, blah, blah, blah. And I'm sitting here saying, look at the economy that we've been left with. Because if you measure where our parents were at the same age that we are now in terms of their financial outcomes, on average, they were far out and ahead of where we are now. So yeah, we're not having kids as early because we can't afford them. <laughs> <laughs> We're not buying houses as early because we can't afford them. So how do we fix an economy that has saddled so many of our peers with mountains of student loan debt, for example? How do we actually address that so that we can go get that slice of the American pie that we've been raised to aspire to, right? Uh, and the more that young people paint the picture of what reality is versus what the fantasy is and what the risk is 
if we don't get serious about it now, that kind of storytelling is important. That kind of storytelling moves people, both in their, Jill, to your point, their individual action and their interpersonal action, but also in their communal action. Um, and, and the last thing I'll say, you know, is I did a, I did a conversation um, that Roland Martin set up a couple of weeks ago. It's online now with Alexis Herman. And Alexis Herman was the first Black woman to be labor secretary of this country. And um, Roland had set up all of these different intergenerational conversations between um, Black elders and Black young people. I use quotes because I'm 36. I don't feel all that young sometimes, but sometimes I do. Sometimes I don't. Um, like I'm probably... I'm probably pretty chuggy, isn't that a word? I don't know. Anyway, um, there was, but I asked her, I said, what do you want from younger generations? What, like, what, what more do you, what, what do you want from us to be, what do you want for us to be doing differently, to be more thoughtful about? And she said, I want you to remember that we've still got lots of fight in us, right? That this kind of thing where we relegate our elders to, like the museums of our mind. And we say, oh, I studied you and I admired you, past tense. Alexis Herman was the reason why organizers and activists met with Hillary Clinton when she was running for office. Uh, we couldn't get the meet. Alexis Herman made the phone call. Alexis Herman said, you all can come and do the meeting at the National Council of Negro Women. Alexis Herman said, I'll make sure the meeting is at least an hour and not half an hour, right? That was her putting in her work. Right. Dolores Huerta is in her 80s or 90s. She has more energy than any young person I've ever met, myself included. She is still out here fighting the fight every single day. And so I think I say that to say there is power in youth and there is power with wisdom seasoning, as my mother would call it. And we have the opportunity to be wise enough to link intergenerationally, just like you all do on this podcast, um, and and bring to bear all of the gifts, all of the talents, all of the power, all of the wisdom that we all have to offer. And I think I think we can be be the time that really gets that right. Well, as someone who is very well seasoned, I appreciate that. Thank you so much. <laughs> No, this is, this is such a wonderful conversation, and, and Jill and I are so grateful to have you on. I'm so grateful to be here. Thank you all for having the critical conversations, um, and you know, thanks for, for doing what you do. Um, I'm sincerely grateful to be here. Um, I'm a fan, and I'm excited to see what you all do next. Thank you so much, Brittany. Thanks, y'all. 